what the marathon experience, that first marathon experience did for me was it gave me a perspective shift on life, right? It, which is like, wow, that sounds really lofty hearing myself say it back. But truly everything was like so muddied and like, it's like I couldn't pull myself out. Like I had gone to really good schools and done all the things that I was supposed to do, but I couldn't pull myself out of um, feeling terrible and feeling like I was a failure. And there was no, there was no blueprint of like, what, are, what am I supposed to do with my life? But the marathon gave me this very concrete training plan. Like in 16 weeks, if you do this, you will get this. And never in my life outside of school had something been so prescriptive and easy, right? Like, I mean, really difficult because you have to do that work. But if even a stranger can promise me that I do this work and I get that, then like, fuck yeah, <laughs> like I'm gonna do this, right? So I stuck to that training plan like, like it was my Bible. And what I saw was that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't magic, but these challenges, these physical challenges that I was doing really were very much tied to my mental ability to push through it and to stay in places of discomfort. You know, you're in a place of discomfort, but you're moving through it. You don't get stuck in the place of discomfort. So that was a really powerful lesson for me. What's up, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning in. That was Allison Mariella Desir that you just heard from a few seconds ago. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running through long-form conversations that are a bit different from the ones that you'll hear elsewhere. In addition to the podcast, I publish a weekly newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, where you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately. Subscribe today at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll start receiving it next week. Okay, Allison Mariella Desir. I've been waiting a while to have this conversation, and it did not disappoint. Allison wears many hats. She's a mom, athlete, and coach. She works as the director of sports advocacy and as an athlete advisor for Wazelle. She's a co-chair of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, a co-founder of Harlem Run, a community organizer, and a lot more. In this conversation, Allison told me about her relationship with running, the ways in which it's evolved over the years, and how she views her place in the sport today. We discussed how feeling out of place as a runner led her to create communities where people feel like they belong. We talked about the lack of diversity in the running industry and the work she's doing to help change that, as well as her upcoming book, The Unbearable Whiteness of Running, which is due out sometime in 2022. We also talked about identity and extroversion, competitiveness and community building, and a lot more. There's no sponsor for this week's show, but if you'd like to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support, where for as little as a buck a week, you can help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is my Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend and colleague, Billy Yang, the occasional emergency pod, and other perks that pop up from time to time. That's themorningshakeout.com slash support. 
A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me, and I cannot thank you enough for it. Okay, let's get right into this one with Allison Mariella Desir. All right, Allison Mariella Desir, we are finally making this happen. It is a real pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much, Mario. I'm happy, uh, happy to be here. There's a lot that I want to talk with you about in this conversation, but I first want to learn a little bit more about you. I, I know just through your bio, you're a very busy woman. You're a mom. You're an athlete coach. You're the director of sports advocacy and an athlete advisor for Wazell. You're a community organizer and a lot more that I'm just not getting to right there. But fill me in a little bit. How do you think about yourself and how you move through the world? Mm. Yeah, I think a key piece of who I am and what I do is build community and build um, spaces where people feel vulnerable to show up as their authentic selves and therefore empowered. So that would be sort of the link that goes through everything that I do, whether it's my role at Wazelle, whether it's the communities that, that I've built, like Harlem Run and Run for All Women, um, whether it's even in my friendships and my marriage. I think this idea of like share, shared vulnerability um, really allows people to be their best selves. And, um, you know, along with that, uh, the other really important piece is social justice and making sure that people have the access to show up, the access and the freedom to show up um, vulnerable and as their authentic self. So I think that's really what links everything that I'm interested in. And it, it really is the, how I make decisions on what I pursue and what I get involved in. I'd love to dig into the community builder aspect of it. You mentioned how you founded Harlem Run, Run for All Women, numerous other things that you're involved with. Have you always been someone who has thrived in a community or wanted to build one around you and things that you're interested in and passionate about? Yeah. I, I Now that as I reflect more on my life, as I'm getting older, I see that this has always been my path. And I've always been the kind of person, um, and this is not just to like toot my own horn, but I've been the kind of person that people really like to be around and that people feel really good when they're around me. And I actually realized this when I was uh, getting my second master's in counseling psychology. And um, it was at a point where I didn't really want to, I was sort of realizing people were giving me that feedback. People love to be around me. Mm -hmm. People wanted to spend time with me. And I wasn't in a space where I wanted that. And I remember talking to one of my advisors, like, I feel all of this pressure, right? Like people, people want to be around me. And she was like, well, this is not, you know, this is an interesting concern. And she was like, well, you, you know, you still have the ability to set boundaries for yourself around uh, how much you let people in, but you also have to recognize that there are consequences. And she's like, but you do have this gift. You have this special energy that people enjoy being around. And, and so how will you, how will you use that energy? And so that's when I started to really think deeply about it. But when I was a child, my father gave me the nickname powdered feet, which describes somebody so active. Mm -hmm. They're like always running around. I got that nickname very early. I was involved in lots of different sports and activities that my parents put me in. And yeah, people, like I was always going on play dates with folks. I was always invited to parties and people always enjoyed being around me. In high school, I was most likely to succeed. Like there was always that that feeling 
and it, as I mentioned, it wasn't until um, really my master's program that I started to think more intentionally about what I wanted to do with that energy and how I wanted to use it to like build uh, community. Are you a naturally extroverted person? I struggle with that because I love being around people and I definitely mm-hmm. get energy from that. But I also love being by myself. and <laughs> I love reading. So I guess maybe I'm, I'm mixed. Like, you know, I'm in the middle. Like this morning, for example, I woke up um, after not getting a lot of sleep and I was just like, today's going to be a terrible day and I have so many things to do and I'm <laughs> not looking forward to it. And then I had my first meeting and I was like, oh my God, like this is so cool. I have such awesome plans. So yeah, it could go both ways. I get a lot of energy uh, from folks, but then I also feel like I need to retreat and recharge. Let's dig into that a little bit more. How do you retreat and recharge when you need that time for yourself and you just got to step away from the energy of it all so you can just kind of process and maybe come down a little bit? Yeah, there's two There's two ways. One is is through running. You know, I find running to be, I mean, running is so many things to me. Running also is a space where I tend to get a lot of really good ideas and I like want to mm-hmm. run home immediately and write them down. But sometimes running is just the place to get into that like meditative movement, right? Where you can sort of just, I don't know if it's zoning in or zoning out. Um, and then the other way, to be honest, is, and I used to think it's kind of weird, but I just like lay in, in a room in the dark, <laughs> Right. And I think that might sound creepy, but there are so many, I, you know, just like there's so many stimuli around us all the time, whether it's mm-hmm. your watch that links to your phone and then your computer. And then I have a two-year-old son. So sometimes if I could just lie in a dark room and do some breathing, um, I come out a much better person. <laughs> That's heaven on earth for you right now. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. <laughs> What does your relationship with running look like today? It has changed a lot. And, you know, I'm finally at a point after giving birth to my son where I feel like I can really give running my all in a way that I haven't been able to. So prior to having my son, um, I had the body that folks would look at me and assume that like I was a runner or that I was some kind of athlete. I was thinner than I am now, you know, looked the part. Um, but I didn't necessarily see myself in those spaces. And that led to the creation of some of the communities, right? Because I mm-hmm. wanted to have a space where Black folks like me could show up, uh, show up in whatever pace they were, uh, whatever, you know, whatever part, whatever piece of their life struggle they were in. And then I got to a place where I was getting faster and feeling really confident in myself. And I started to think to myself, you know, maybe one day I want to qualify for the Boston Marathon, right? Like that typical sort of journey of like when you're getting into it and you all of a sudden you want to do these big things. Um, And then I had my son and, or then I got pregnant and I had just run the New York City Marathon in November of 2018. Two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. was really excited about it. But maybe four or five weeks after that, I was no longer able to run because every time I moved, I would bleed. And the doctors didn't know if the blood was like me having a miscarriage or if it was something else. So running was sort of taken from me at a point where like I had just done something really amazing and hard. I had just done the New York City Marathon and suddenly within weeks, it felt like I was losing not just the activity, but all of my identity that was wrapped into that, right? Like me being a runner, being a running leader. And... I found myself throughout the pregnancy being like, you start to be really resentful of your own body, right? Like that is somehow 
when you're pregnant, your body is completely, it's like an alien to you. It's completely foreign. Uh, you don't know what it's going to do, what the, what the changes are going to be like, how, and suddenly it's like you're living for this other person that hasn't even arrived yet. So I had a really, um, really hard time reconciling all of that. And then I gave birth and had these ideas about, you know, quote unquote, snapping back and how I would just, you know, my six week appointment, I would be one of those women who would already be running again. And that just really wasn't the case. So it has been a long, long journey that I'm still in of accepting this new body that I have, accepting different limitations, but also seeing that there's still a lot of potential for me, right? Like I'm running, I'm set to run the New York City Marathon this year. And there's a lot of excitement around what will that be, right? Like I've never done something like that in this body. So what will that experience be like? From an identity standpoint, where does runner fit into yours? And has that evolved as well over the years? Definitely. I would say that for like the, my late 20s, when I, the founding of Harlem Run through, I don't know, like 32, 33, I'm 36 now, that was like the thing I said first, right? Like I'm a runner or I'm an endurance athlete. And that, because I was so, I was so amazed, I still am, but I was so amazed at how powerful my body was, but really how powerful my mind was to propel my body to do these things, right? So like all of that about like the way that running had helped me get through depression and helped me with anxiety, the way that running helped me build community, the way that I could decide to just set on a 10 mile run and be fine with it. All of that was contained in that identity. I think now what comes, the, the things that come before that are mother and then next is community builder, because I really see how running or movement in general is is truly just a lens or a framework to get at the work that I want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And like, knock on wood, <laughs> just knocked on my head, I could not run another step and still have this identity of like, I mean, mother, certainly, uh, but builder. Let's rewind a bit. What was your introduction to running, whether it was the sport of it, the activity of it, and or the community of it? Running started for me during recess, like in, uh, well, my, actually it started before that because when I was like four years old, my parents had put me in, um, in soccer and I remember just like running, well, I have vague memories of running around, but my actual like formal running to me was telling the boys like, I'll see you at recess on the pavement <laughs> and like kicking boys' butt um, in elementary school. And like straight up racing with them? Right, yeah, like we would we would get out to recess and we had our little set, like the pavement was, I don't even know, let's say it was 50 meters. And yeah, yeah. we organized these little like track meets during, <laughs> during recess. And I was one of the fastest girls. So I was always kicking butt. There were these two boys, Corey and Caleb, and they were twins. And they were, they were I remember them being my toughest competition. But every day at recess, either, either we were running and competing or we were competing in some kind of weird like gymnastics thing that we put together on the, on the high bars in the playground. But um, it was really a space for me to, I found a lot of pride in, in being fast and winning and, and also having this identity that was, um, that I actually haven't really thought about, but this like, it was sort of like gender bending <laughs> at mm -hmm. the time, right? That a girl could be so strong and so fast um, and beat the boys. I really like that idea. Since you mentioned it, are you a naturally 
competitive person or have you always been a competitive person? Because hearing you describe that experience on the playground, you're, I mean, you're challenging these dudes to, <laughs> you know, to a race and then you're challenging them in gymnastics too, which is a completely different thing. So I'd love to just try and understand that a, a little bit more and maybe how, how that's kind of grown and evolved over the years. Yeah, I used to be a far more competitive person uh, when I was younger. Now I, I think of myself, like I have, um, I, I guess I'm competitive internally. Like I have, mm -hmm. there are, I have goals for myself, um, but I'm a lot more forgiving. And I also realize that my, like this idea of my worth being tied to an able body and what my body can do is really, um, what's the word? Uh, I mean, it's really problematic, right? <laughs> because if if your your if your worldview is that what your body can do makes you valuable, then what about people who can't do certain things with their body? And what does that mean for what we value in society? I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But yes, I was very competitive when I was younger, and a lot of that came from having an older brother who anything that I did, he did like three times as good. So I played piano. My brother played like seven instruments. Like I was fast. He was faster. I was smart. He was in 10 APs, right? So there was a lot of competition that just the two of us had. My parents didn't impose it, but the two, the two of us had. And then, yeah, there was always competition with like boys. Like I just, I don't know where that came from. I guess maybe that's just, I don't, yeah, I really don't know where those messages came from, but I, I just wanted to be faster. I wanted to be smarter than the boys. Fast forwarding from there a little bit, maybe it's your adult years, maybe it was sooner. I'm not entirely sure. When did running as a formal activity, whether it was for a team or something you undertook on your own, become a part of your life? So in sixth grade, I went from public school to private school and I like did everything in my power to not make that happen. But my, my parents were determined. And so I went to this private school, um, mostly white private school. Actually, it's it's uh, well, funny is not the right word, but the private school that I went to is Dwight Englewood School. And if you Google that school, you'll see that a teacher recently resigned from that school because she claimed that Dwight Englewood was teaching critical race theory and was doing a disservice to all of these young white boys uh, in particular at Dwight Englewood. So that's the kind of school that I went to. But um, went to this private school and it was finally a place where there were team sports. And so I signed up to be on the, um, I was on the soccer team in the fall and I was always the fastest person on the soccer team. And then in the spring, I went for spring track and the coach was actually uh, my math teacher who was, uh, who was a black man, Jamaican, and one of the few black people on the campus. And he took a real interest in me and saw how fast I was. So sixth grade is when I started to get into it. And throughout middle school, I actually like competed. I went to the Junior Olympics. Like I was, uh, and this is all really foggy in my mind. And you asking this question is like bringing it up for me. So maybe I'll, I'll Google what my stats were. And, but I remember being like really having big dreams around um, the four, well, at that time, the hundred, 100 meter, no, the 80 meter hurdles um, and the 100 and the 200. And then in high school, I went on to run the 400 meter hurdles and the 400 meter uh, dash and the four by four. But long distance running wouldn't come into my life until my 20s when I was very depressed. And I just happened to see it through social media. But you were in the track pretty yeah, early on. I was, I was, I was super into it. I actually like 
I had a dream of competing in the Olympics, um, but my immigrant parents didn't know what that took. <laughs> They're like, we support your dreams, sure, but they had no idea like what that the structure to give me for that. But yeah, I was really heavy into track and field and um, I loved it. Like I tried the high jump, I tried the long jump, I tried the triple jump. Like it just was, um, it was, it was such a fun space, competitive, but really fun space. Did you have any heroes in the sport athletes that you looked up to or wanted to try and emulate? I loved Flojo. I thought that she was just, I mean, I still think she, um, she was like a woman. She brought the kind of energy to track and field that track and field really needs, right? Like, I mean, I know that these references have already been made, people comparing her to, to Shakari and, and others, but she, I mean, from her, just her confidence and her style. Um, and then I really loved this athlete who is not, uh, not a runner. This is kind of funny to say. I really love Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> like, figure skater. The figure yeah, yeah, yeah. skater. I grew up in Massachusetts, so I remember Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> love Nancy Kerrigan. I actually remember I did a school project about the whole Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding thing. So mm-hmm. I, I had the, like I had all these newspaper clippings. I was very obsessed with her for whatever reason. And then I also really love this woman who, I forget her name, um, black woman. She later got her medals taken from her um, because of doping. Her husband was her trainer. Uh, Jones was her last name. I don't know, but I had Marion a few- Jones. Marion Jones, yes. Mm-hmm. She was also an idol of mine. Um, and then I, I the, another person who comes to mind was my brother's friend's mom was an Olympian. She had won bronze, and her name. I can't recall, but her being so close to me, it felt like the Olympics was not something that was like this far off dream. It's like, I know an Olympian, like I could be one of these people. Have you remained a fan of the sport since then? Or was there a period in time where you weren't really paying much attention to it because you had other interests and such? Yeah, I stopped. I really lost a lot of interest in track and field when I went to college and college was just like such a wild time for me. Like I was just drinking and partying and really like, I am the epitome of somebody who grew up in too much of a bubble and then went to college and lost their mind. (laughs) So that was, so I really lost interest in so many things during college. Um, and then I think I came, I came back to the sport really in 2012 when I was going through depression and, and I got into distance running and my interest shifted to really following, um, distance running. And I would say track, to be honest, like just this past year, I was able to go to the Olympic trials just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot there for me because I love the athletes and I love the sports, but the structures, you know, whether it's the, the IOC, the, the Olympic structure itself that displaces so many people that you know, Japan doesn't even want the Olympics to take place. Like all of the, as I'm older and I see all of the politics, all the things that surround the sport, it's hard to love it in the same way. And it's hard to figure out how do I reconcile wanting to support these individuals who need this stage and really need this level of competition when the whole thing is just a corrupt shit show. We could have a whole series of podcasts about <laughs> just that because it's so it's so layered and complex and frustrating and archaic and everything that you just described. So we'll leave that for we'll yeah. leave that for another time so we can keep the focus on you. You mentioned how you got into distance running to help deal with some depression that you were dealing with at the time. Tell me a little bit more about that and how it came into your life. 
yeah, I did not expect it at all. Like if this is not something that I ever, I never imagined that running would take this role in my life. But um, in 2011, 2012, my father was very sick with Lewy body dementia. He had been diagnosed in 2005 when I was in college and he just was um, deteriorating by the time it was 2011, 2012. He, like, he couldn't walk, he couldn't feed himself, he was wearing diapers. And I was responsible for part of his caregiving because I was unable to find a job. So I was spending a lot of time at home watching my father you know, really become an infant. Um, I was dating somebody who was unfaithful and so much of my, my sense of self and my value was tied up in, in him. And so him rejecting me was like, telling me that I was worthless. And um, so, yeah, I just, I was spending a lot of time at home, a lot of time on, on the couch, in the bed, looking at social media. And what stuck out to me during that time was this, this friend of mine who was training for a marathon and I knew him. I, what, from what I knew of him, he was not a runner, right? Like he was just an, he was an average looking guy. He, at the time, my conception of what marathon runners was, was skinny white dudes and like short shorts. And he was not any of those things, but he was training for the marathon and he was talking about the mental transformation. He was like, I'm doing things I never thought were possible for myself. Um, and I really connected with this idea of like taking on this really hard journey, breaking it up into small pieces and accomplishing something amazing. And so I started to think like, I saw myself in him. I was like, maybe, maybe this is a thing. Like, I mean, maybe I'll just give it a shot. And so a year after he completed his marathon, I decided to sign up with team and training for this like training plan in exchange for fundraising. And um, yeah, that's how I found myself really as a beginner in this, in this sport, hoping to, to run a marathon. Once you made that decision to commit to it, to train for this marathon, do you remember that first run? that you went on after making that decision for yourself? I do. So there was preseason. There were these two preseason workouts um, before the season actually began. And I remember like I went shopping to pick out the perfect outfit because I, I was like, you know, if you look the part, that's, that's half of it. Right. <laughs> so I had this like orange Nike hooded zip up and I got like these um, new leggings and uh, I still had my old pair of Adidas sneakers but I remember showing up and we were doing um like an out and back which at the time I was like what's an out and back <laughs> they were like we're gonna do an out and back 5k in Central Park we had met up at Bethesda Terrace which by the way at the time I didn't know what Bethesda Terrace was so I was I was coming from New Jersey where I lived at the time like with my Google Google Maps just like trying to find the middle of the park and because I didn't know what an out and back was, because I didn't know what that distance was, I remember getting that metallic taste in my mouth, like, you know, when you're running too hard mm -hmm. <laughs> and just feeling like I was going to die in that run. Um, but finally when I, and like looking for people for signs, like, am I there yet? Like, you know, when do, when do we turn? But on the way back, I remember seeing like the, the finish line, so, so to speak, and like the 400 runner and the like, did my little kick. So yeah, that, that, what I, what stuck out to me was like how out of place I was, but still I had, um, the, the, there was still like a runner in there. There was still some confidence in there for me to, to kick at the last hundred or so meters of the, the warm up. Why did you feel so out of place at the time? You know, there, there were a couple things going on. One, 
everybody was white. Um, two, I was, I'll say even, so I recognize, I realized everybody was white when I got there. So, but, but this feeling of not belonging started before that. And I think it's because mm-hmm. of how I was coming to the sport. Like I was coming, I was training for this marathon really because it was going to save my life. Um, I had no idea what that would look like. I was putting myself in a position that I hadn't been in such a long time. Like I was leaving my apartment, which was a huge deal to go into New York city to meet a crowd of strangers and my mental health and future was depending on this. Right. (laughs) So I felt like there was a lot riding on it and I didn't, um, I also didn't want to open up and share all of that. So like I was holding back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting there and seeing that I did in fact look the part. In fact, two other women were wearing this, the exact same outfit. So it must have been like just the hot Nike look at the time. So I looked the part, but looking around, I was like, wow, it's like a bunch of, bunch of white folks. It's like the people that I went to high school with. Um, so there was that feeling. And there was also the feeling of like other people seem to know each other there were no real introductions made and all of this was sticking in my mind, right. For when I would then create Harlem run and I would make sure that at every workout we started with people going around the circle and introducing themselves, you know, we would break up into pace groups so that you would at least know the people in your group. Right. So like all of these things that I was observing would later come to be what I would think of were important pieces of building community. When did you first start to feel a sense of belonging in the running community, whether it was with that team and training group that you joined to train for this first marathon, or maybe it was when you created Harlem Run yourself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and formed your own community around it? I'd love to understand that a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah, you know, there were moments of belonging. Like, I know that um, I remember... Well, for example, when I ran the race, the, my first marathon, the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, I remember, so with team and training, like everybody, participants would wear purple shirts and coaches would yep. wear red shirts. And I always thought it was really corny that like people would say, go team to each other. So I never said any of that in the training. But I remember when I was at the marathon running, seeing somebody in red, I was like, go team, or seeing another person in purple, because I felt like in that moment, like, wow, I really, I don't, the only people who I sort of know are the people in this program. And so it was this sort of like, I see you. So I remember feeling really like I was a part of something when I was, when I was running that race. Um, and yeah, then there were, you know, there were other times during some of the meetups where, uh, like, I remember when I ran 10 miles, no, six, six miles for the first time. And whoever was in my group, it was the first time that all of us had run that distance. And there was this like shared enjoyment around that success. And that felt like a really strong sense of belonging. But beyond that, in the running community, the times that I felt like I belonged really started with creating Harlem Run and creating a space where I could write the rules. And the rules meant that no matter what your pace was, you could show up, that um, you were always going to be greeted and acknowledged, right? Like you can still, to this day, you can go to running groups and like nobody even say anything to you and you do the workout and then you just leave, right? Like I see it happen all the time and I'm like, why are you all even in community with each other if you're not going to acknowledge one another's presence? But so building Harlem Run and finding other groups, like fast forward many years, right now I'm here in um, in Washington and there's a group, CSRD, that I went to that group and it felt like it was family, right? Because they also operate on this, these same principles of 
nobody gets left behind, making introductions, you know, all of the representation that they show through their social media shows that they're diverse, not only racially, but in age, in size. And so, yeah, that those are the moments, those are the spaces that where I feel a sense of belonging, where they're essentially built for us by us. We're going to put a pin in that. I want to come back to it and dig into it a bit deeper. In the training for your first marathon with team and training, what did that do for your mental health? Just the process of putting in the work week after week leading up to this big goal and becoming a, a runner, I don't want to say for the first time in your life, but at this point of your life. Yeah, you know, it really, what what the marathon experience, that first marathon experience did for me was it, it gave me a perspective shift on life, right? It, which is like, wow, that sounds really lofty hearing myself say it back. But truly my life had seemed, it just, everything was like so muddied and like, it's like, I couldn't pull myself out. Like I had gone to really good schools and done all the things that I was supposed to do, but I couldn't pull myself out of um, feeling terrible and feeling like I was a failure. And there was no, there was no blueprint of like, what, are, what am I supposed to do with my life? But the marathon gave me this very concrete training plan, like in 16 weeks, if you do this, you will get this. And never in my life outside of school had something been so prescriptive and easy, right? Like, I mean, really difficult because you have to do that work. But if even a stranger can promise me that I do this work and I get that, then like, fuck yeah, <laughs> like I'm going to do this, right? So I stuck to that training plan like, like it was my Bible. And what I saw was that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't magic, but that I was, these challenges, these physical challenges that I was doing really were very much tied to my um, mental ability to push through it and to um, stay in places of discomfort and not like wallow. Well, I don't want to say wallow because that has, um, you know, I don't want to characterize depression as people wallowing, but like, you know, you're in a place of discomfort, but you're moving through it, right? Like you don't get stuck Mm -hmm. in the place of discomfort. So that was a really, that was a really powerful lesson for me. And so it inspired me to go to counseling. It inspired me to then apply to school and get a master's in counseling psychology, because I really wanted to understand how does this work? Like, how is it that I'm feeling better? And if this is the case, then I should share this with more people, right? Like, this should not be a secret that you have to suffer for a period of your life and only to then find out that movement can be a useful tool, right? Like this is something we should all just know and talk about. Are those the biggest things that training for the marathon unlocked for you in your life at that time was opening yourself up to go into counseling yourself, but then also pursuing a degree in it? Absolutely. And it's because I saw like, I can do hard things. I can do more than I even can imagine, right? Like, whereas before it seemed like there was this um, ceiling and maybe I had reached the ceiling and there were no other possibilities. Suddenly I was like, whoa, like there's so much life left. Anything mm-hmm. can happen. And so, yeah, so this, the, the, I went to school and, and there was just a series of, uh, I felt like my life was set on this path where, um, I could continue to be curious and learn and iterate almost like it was like a tangential path. Like one version of my life is where I just 
honestly ceased to exist, right? Was so depressed that I just decided to end it all. And the other path that I that I was granted was this opportunity to keep being curious and and just, you know, stay in the find the discomfort but push through it and, you know, like things could get better. If you hadn't committed to training for that marathon and gone through the 16 week program and experienced everything that you just described, where do you think you would be today? I don't think I would be today. Honestly, I running truly was the catalyst that saved my life, right? Like I, I know that running, well, for some folks, maybe running alone saves their lives for me. It was, Mm -hmm. it was running, opening up my mind to the fact that I could get help, right? That I, I had not reached the end of my rope at 26 or 27 years old. But yeah, were it not for running, I would have, I probably would have ended up overdosing because the life that I was leading, what I was doing is I was um, taking Xanax, like 20 Xanax at a time to sleep because I didn't want to sleep. Like Xanax really works in like s- small increments, right? It's like, mm-hmm. so, but so I wanted to make sure that I could get if I could sleep the 24 hours, wake up for one hour and go back to sleep, like I wanted to be awake and experiencing pain for the smallest amount of time. So at some point I would have, um, I would have overdosed, I imagine. And to think about all that I would have missed out on, I mean, I can't even process that, but running truly was, was the thing that saved me. Where did it go for you after you crossed the finish line of that marathon? Because I know with team and training, and this isn't a knock on them or their program at all, there are a lot of one-and-done marathoners. They run their race, and then they may never lace up their shoes again. That obviously was not the case for you, but I imagine when you finish something like that, there's probably this feeling of just being lost, like, where do I, where do I go next? And I'd really love to just hear from you how you were thinking about it at the time. There was a little bit of that, but I also, you know, this like this, the, the academic Allison had come back to life and that academic Allison is the person who was like, you know, like I was, I was looking at every angle of how could I, my life had changed so much for the better. How could I stay in this space? And so I realized that I could get a, do- a job at team and training. So I took, I, I started working at team and training as like, I think it was like a temp or a part-time job helping other people who would be doing the same experience that I was doing. And, um, being in that space also opened my eyes to the industry. I realized like, wow, there, there are people who make money who like, there's a whole, there are a whole set of jobs associated with marathons, right? Which was just, you know, growing up as a first generation American, like the jobs that I saw available were like doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, basic stuff. Um, so I was like, well, there's like a whole industry here. And I also then got plugged into other races and, you know, all that insider talk, that we do <laughs> that other people get so bored of or like can't stand that we do. So I got all of like the insider perspective on all of that. And so I started signing up for other races. I learned about New York Roadrunners, which I had, I had never really, uh, one caveat, I, I had never really heard of it, but I had participated when I was younger with a neighbor f- friend in the uh, Race for the Cure series in Central Park. So I had some kind of like previous knowledge of races taking place, but I was introduced to New York Roadrunners and learned about their nine plus one. So I started doing those races and this feeling kept coming up for me of like, I'm going to these races, like super pumped and excited, but then I'm getting there and feeling like I don't have a community behind me. And um, that prompted me to, to finally start Harlem Run. 
which I want to get into here in a second. But prior to gaining that insider knowledge, taking a gig with team and training, deciding that you were going to go back to school, how were you thinking about your life outside of running at the time? What did you want to do personally and professionally? Mm. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I mean, I had like, I had had a whole series of random jobs. Like I had worked at, as a paralegal. I had worked doing fundraising for a school, but to be honest, like there was no, I had no idea of what I had no plans of what could come next because I was so in it, right? Like mm-hmm. starting to train for this marathon reopened my eyes to possibilities. And the only possibilities were really tied into, it had to be something with running and mental health. Um, so there was like no other, I had no other really thoughts around what my professional life could be. I will say that it was an interesting moment because at that time, none of my friends were really into fitness. Like one of my friends, Sean Peters, he actually has um, a platform called My Body, My Kitchen. He was just developing it at the time. So he was just developing his own um, you know, fitness, uh, good eating, nutrition, all of that. But it was really like my friends were into like partying and hanging out <laughs> And I was taking this detour and, and now as I look at it, like my friends, all of my friends have become, like gotten into running and stuff. And I've met so many new people and all of those are runners, but it was very, it was very much like I was just getting into something and didn't have uh, necessarily like the, the close friends or community with me. Tell me about Harlem Run and its origins and when that idea started percolating in your mind. So I had started a blog called powderedfeet.com after my nickname and I was blogging about my marathon experience and not really for anybody. Like my mom was the only person who had access to my blog. It turns out she was sharing it with like family and anybody who would listen. But <laughs> so I was blogging about all of these things that I was learning about myself and um, all of the research that I was doing on mental health and on, um, and yeah, just sharing my insights and I had a blog release party, which sounds so funny. Like, I don't even know. I don't know if people did it then or people certainly don't do it now, but I did it. <laughs> so I had this blog release party in October, <laughs> October of 2012. So this is, I completed the marathon in June of 2012, I guess a few months later, October of 2012. And um, lots of people came and it was this really exciting moment. And I would continue to blog for like the next uh, year until I decided like, why am I just talking about this? Like I should create an actual community. Like I should, all of these things that I'm sharing, I can create a space based on that. So uh, November of 2013 is when I started Powdered Feet Run Club, what it was called at the time. And it was very, 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 very slow to take off. It was lots of Mondays in the freezing cold by myself, just taking photos to make it seem like people were showing up. I had printed flyers and postcards and was going all over the place, dropping them in, in uh, different you know, uh, businesses. I remember I went to this one business, and I won't say anything further because they might know who I'm talking about, but I asked them, you know, I'm starting this running group. Like, I would love for this to be the meeting spot. And they said to me, no, um, that would be a distraction from my business. Fast forward four years, that same person was asking us to meet in their spot, and that same person no longer has the business 
because of COVID. So not saying that, <laughs> you know, they, they, karma is a bitch, but, um, but yeah, so it was, it was very slow going. And one of the first people that I met in April of 2014 would be Amir, my now husband. Was that your first experience in community building? Um, or a, or a, maybe a formal community of some sort? It was, uh, yeah, def- yeah. I, I think f- formal would be the, the piece because um, like I had always done, I had always been in leadership roles and I had always, to a certain extent, I was really cultivating community wherever I was. Um, but this was the first like true concerted effort, knowing that I wanted to build something. Now I had no idea like, how big it would get or there was no like end goal in mind, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to build a community where people felt comfortable um, and where I could share all of this exciting stuff that running was giving to me. Is it safe to assume you were living in Harlem at the time? So I actually, so it was part of street run club at at first and it became Harlem run the following year. um, When this, one of my neighbors who's now, well, she was my neighbor at the time she was working at New York running company and she was living in Harlem. And so at the time, New York Running Company, their website was run.com. Her, she was living in Harlem. So she decided to buy the domain harlemrun.com. So she found out what I was doing. And she was like, let me just give you this domain, right? She's a white woman. She was like, this, this is, you're already doing the work. You should own this domain. So she transferred it to me. And sure enough, like with the name, people, when people started searching, it became easier to find Harlem Run. But to your question about where I was living... At the beginning of Harlem Run, I was actually living in New Jersey um, in, oh, an, mm-hmm. in an apartment. Um, and so I was like coming across the river to do it. But I, I moved into Harlem soon thereafter. Uh, but there was a bit of like this disconnect of like, I'm doing all this work. And Harlem is a place where my family had lived and where I had a lot of connections and uh, to through college. But in the beginning, I was in uh, New Jersey. When did it really start to gain some momentum? I would say that Amir joining had a lot to do with it, right? Because part of, I think, my gift of being a community builder is also um, being able to be collaborative with other people and, and being able to like share the baby, right? So I think a lot of people will start something and they'll be so... Like it's your baby, so you want to nurture it and you want to be its everything and you want to, you know, you're, only you can take care of it. And, um, and that's often a recipe for, for disaster, right? Like the truth is uh, when you're nurturing a baby, you want to get like the baby needs more than just you around, right? And so what, what I saw in Amir was that Amir was, had started his own running club at his church and people weren't showing up to his group either, but he really had a desire to build something. And we were like, you know what, let's just combine our efforts. Like not, nobody's coming to either one of our groups. Let's combine our efforts and let's let's make this baby Harlem run bigger than just our personalities. Let's make sure that this is something that people feel deeply invested in beyond just our persona or what we individually have to offer. So I would say like Amir started coming in April of 2014. And so that summer, we probably had 25 to 30 people who are coming um, and there were also other leaders who were becoming, who are like rising to the surface, right? Like many of those people actually went on to form their own run clubs and have their own really successful movements too. Um, but that was the period I would say that we really began to coalesce. 
What did you want it to be? And what did you want its members to get out of it? Initially, I just wanted it to be, I just wanted people to, to run with and who shared this idea that running was about more than running, that mm-hmm. running um, was about like personal transformation and about connection. Right. So like we were, we would run together, but it was really about like, what were we learning about ourselves and uh, what were we learning about each other? That, that really was my initial hope. And I remember in, um, in October of 2014, somebody asked if we could have sweatshirts that said Harlem run on it. And I was like, cool, sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> right? Like I was also, I didn't know that there were other clubs and crews that were forming all around the world at the same time. Um, many of these clubs and crew founders come from like design space or, you know, artistic spaces. And so they were really into like products and stuff like that, but that wasn't me. Like I was really coming from, um, you know, the path that I just described. So when this person suggested sweatshirts, I was like, sure, yeah, we can get sweatshirts. And then I was like, what if we all wore the same thing to races? And then we got singlets, right? So it was sort of like, it kept evolving. And I I have to say that I'm really thankful that I had, I realized that I was not always going to be the smartest person in the room or that I wasn't always going to be the person coming up with the ideas, right? Like when other people have ideas and have the desire to to act on them, I try to do my best to empower them to, to make it happen. What was the makeup of the group or how has the makeup of the group evolved over time in terms of who's joining and what they're interested in and their backgrounds, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's been all over the place. Like my first actual member is this white woman named Krista who now lives in the UK. And it's sort of funny, we, we call her the OG, um, the original gangster. And it's funny for obvious reasons, like she's a white woman <laughs> but um, uh, from the suburbs. But she was the first person to, who, who started to show up. So she's the first person that actually like made me a leader. Um, but I mean, we've had periods of time where it's been uh, more men than women. Um, I've, we've always had a diverse leadership team, or I should say we've always had a mostly black leadership team. I don't want to use diverse as, uh, like diverse and black are not the same thing. <laughs> so we've always had a mostly black leadership team. And what I can say is the demographics, you can see the demographics shifting as the demographics in Harlem shift. So over the years, as gentrification mm-hmm. um, has continued, uh, you're seeing a lot more young professionals. Um, there are a lot more white people um, but there's always really been a range in age. Like we have this one guy, Kevin, uh, who's one of my favorite people. He actually, like, he comes to Harlem Run and regularly will show us pictures of him and Ted Corbett, like hanging out. Um, and then you have um, like white kids from Columbia University who are in school and found out what we're doing. And so it really is, it's a very diverse space in many different ways um, with the intentionality of like leadership, mostly black and that the stories that we're telling are rooted in in, um, in in black stories in Harlem's history and being true to that. I want to rewind to when you first joined Team in Training. You mentioned earlier how when you showed up for that first run, you didn't feel like you belonged. I know you're in Seattle now, which we can talk about. But when you were on the ground in New York meeting with Harlem Run regularly, when new people showed up, was that something that was really important to you? That when someone showed up, they felt like they belonged to this group, regardless of who they were and what their background was. Absolutely, I, 
that's, you know, that's like the critical piece to me, because as I mentioned, like there are so many, there's so many times where you go into a space and somebody doesn't even acknowledge your presence. Right. So I want like every single person that comes to Harlem run, um, there was a time when like we were able to hug. And so we would always offer, offer the hug. I mean, people had the opportunity to say no, but I, I wanted to make sure that everybody was acknowledged coming into the space, which is kind of funny because New Yorkers, sometimes we don't say hello to people. So like people would walk up and we'd be like, hi, welcome to Harlem run. And they'd be like, yeah, hi. <laughs> like, why are you being so weird? Um, but we wanted to make sure that everybody was acknowledged. And then at the beginning, when there was like 25 or so people, we would go around the circle answering a question like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? And as the group up got bigger, it would be turn to the person to your right and share share something. And then we, we would do introductions and make sure that all newbies were um, were identified so that we could then pay attention to them. So this sense of belonging was a really, really intentional part of of the making of Harlem Run. You're a community builder who has written and, and will continue to write about the divide that exists in, in this like large community, amorphous community that we know as running. And I want to get into the specifics of your writing here in a little bit, but since we're, we're on this, this topic of the community or one of the communities that you've created, like how do we rebuild this greater running community? And the follow-up question to that is on an individual level, where do people need to start? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think, so I'm going to, I don't know, but maybe I'll start with the later, the second one first, even though that's not what you intended, but something that I always try to think about is who is in the room and who's not in the room and why. And I think that's a really powerful, like guiding question or series of questions that many people with power don't think about. So you as a cis heterosexual white man, well, now I'm making an assumption about you, but you, in most rooms you're in, there are probably a lot of people like you in that room. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you take the time to think about like, huh, wow, there's no black people in this room, or there's no people with uh, obvious disabilities in this room, or there's no, you know, like, I don't know if you think about that, but if you, if you make that simple shift and start thinking about that, it allows you to think about, okay, well, what are the resources needed to be in this room? Where was this event advertised? What are the, uh, what accessibility wise would prevent somebody from being in this room? What network did you need to be involved in to be in this space, right? So I think asking those series of questions, if anything, it makes you more curious and it allows you to see yourself in this world, right? And that's what I think is, is really, has been missing from the running industry and running community. It's sort of been this phallus that like, running is this like beautiful thing that exists outside of any social structures, any oppressive systems that we have when that's not the case, right? Like there's a reason why, like I can't go running outside naked, right? Because there are laws around that. Well, I guess I could, but I could go to jail, right? So the idea is that running, all of these sports, all sports are governed by the same oppressive systems that we are pushing up against outside of sport, right? And so I think a good entry into looking at that is to ask these questions. When you go to cross country meets, why is it that most of these kids are white? And then why is it when you go to the track that most of these kids are black, right? I mean, I guess you could believe these, these outdated and, and um, racist ideas based on eugenics that, that black people are just faster and they're meant to be sprinters. Or you could think about, well, what is it, like, what accounts for this? And how do we change, what can we do to change 
to change that? Like, what can be the linchpin there? Um, I, I always try to look at, at the very least, things sh- like the proportions of people in, in running should be at least equal to the demographics of the United States, right? So if you have, I think, people who identify as Black, I think there's like 14% of the population is Black. I don't know, 20% is, qualifies as Hispanic, Latinx, and so on and so forth. Well, why are the demographics so different then when you go to a marathon? Why are they so different when you look at the CEOs in the running industry, right? It's not because those populations don't lack an interest or aren't smart enough or whatever the case may be. There's obviously some concerted effort to make these spaces look a particular way. Have you seen things start to shift over the past year to year and a half? You know, this is a difficult question because on the one hand, as a black woman, as somebody who's historically been excluded, I want change to happen tomorrow, right? I want it to happen very Mm -hmm. quickly. But I also know that it's completely unrealistic to think in one year that much could have changed, especially given that people, my ancestors have been doing this work for centuries, right? So this question, and I'm being asked it a lot, and I understand why, but it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of problematic because yeah, you want to say, yes, stuff has changed, but you also want to say, well, if stuff is really going to change, then like structures have to change. People have to be fired. People have to be hired. You know, like a lot has to happen for the change to occur. That being said, I think what I see in the last year is that there are there are people and there are companies who are taking this more seriously than others, right? There are, there are companies that are doing the legwork to, to, to try to shift these systems. I also have to say that like capitalism itself um, will always be uh, a barrier <laughs> to, to truly doing this work, right? And, and I'm not saying that because I'm a socialist, but I'm saying like capitalism requires some people to benefit while other people are suffering. That's just like the nature of it. So um, we can't save everything through through industry. But there are companies that are taking this work really seriously that are moving away from fear and inaction to, okay, I'm going to try things and I'm going to get things wrong and I'm going to try things again. Um, I'm seeing, I think the most obvious shifts that you can see are in terms of like marketing and representation, which on the one hand is cosmetic, but it's also really powerful because if I hadn't seen my black friend running a marathon, then I wouldn't be in this space. So, you know, stuff is happening. There's energy there. I just think it's too soon to congratulate anyone or to um, say that that much has changed. Yeah. And I appreciate that perspective. I guess a better way of asking my question would be how do we acknowledge that progress is happening? However, mm-hmm. minuscule it may, may seem in the grander scheme of things, but just so as we as we move along, because I think this work is going to be going on, it has to be going on beyond like you and I's lifetime. That's just, the, that's just the truth of it. But, you know, as two folks who are in their mid to late 30s, who in all likelihood, unless we experience some radical career shift, are probably going to be involved in this industry <laughs> for a long time to come. How do we acknowledge progress along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. When you said mid to late thirties, I was like, "Oh, that hurts," but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to be forty next year. I get it. I know, I, I know, it. and it's good. It means we're, we're really out here living. Um, so, you know, I think like, and this is some of the work of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition that we're trying to figure out and grapple with. And I think it has to do with 
looking at metrics or establishing some metrics so that we can we can measure quote unquote progress or quote unquote success. And I think some of that, like we can borrow from um, from indexes that already exist, right? Like there's the human right index, human rights index. Athlete Ally has a really powerful index. Um, then you have like Teresa Baker from the CEO of the, out, the Outdoor CEO Pledge that has a way of holding people accountable for the pledges. What the RIDC is trying to do is figure out, okay, what's the best practice around that? But yes, we should look at both the quantitative changes. So the hiring percentages of, of historically excluded populations. And we should look at what is the C-suite makeup, um, right? Like in five years, I hope that uh, there's a, a large shift in terms of who is in the C-suite, what their demographics are. And then we should also look at qualitative things like, um, okay, so you get 10 black people in the door. Well, how long do you retain them? And what is their feeling of belonging? Right. And that's a qualitative piece, which is which means it's more difficult to measure. But is there a greater sense of belonging two years after doing this work? Has it remained the same or has it gone down? Right. If people don't feel like they belong more, then that means that the the marketing that you're doing, the hiring has just been cosmetic. Right. Because really what we're trying to address is the feeling of belonging and the feeling empowered to to use your voice in spaces. So I think it's a mix of quantitative, qualitative measures. The RIDC, with the help of lots of other folks, are hoping that we can be that entity to sort of hold the industry accountable because it's important. Like, I mean, we're human. We want to know that we're making a difference and we want to know that that hopefully things are, are better years from now than they are right now. Let's talk a little bit more about the RIDC, the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, since we're on the topic. You're one of the co-chairs of the organization. How did it come to be? I know that I signed up and joined it just a few months ago. I believe it was in 2020 at some point. I can't remember the exact month that it was announced, but I'd love to get a little backstory on its origins. Yeah, so it started, I actually wasn't even, you know, wasn't my idea. It actually was like my first take on this was white people created the problem. Why do I need to be involved in fixing it? Like y'all should fix this. But it started when a couple of retailers, running retailers came together. Chris Lampenkral, who's my um, Mm co-chair, John Benedict, who is a retailer. He owns Playmakers in Michigan. Um, uh, Wow. I can't remember her name at this moment from, she was at Fleet Fleet Sports. They came together after the Amara. Robin Gobi. Yes. Robin Gobi. Thank you. Sorry, Robin. Um, They came together after the, uh, it was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And then it was also the murder of George Floyd. Um, They came together and said, you know, something's wrong here (laughs) and we have not done enough to, you know, what is our part in this? I guess that's what they really came together to say. Like, you know, the world, uh, all of the these racial injustices are, are so big to ignore and this is happening in our own space of running. Um, what can we do about it? So they came together. They got in touch with, they got connected to Teresa Baker, who is the, the um, founder of the Outdoor CEO Pledge. And she knew me from a while back. And so she connected me to that group. At the same time, Verna Volker, who's the founder of Native Women Running, had reached out to me on Instagram and said, wow, why doesn't the running industry have something similar to what Teresa has built with the outdoor industry? So we came together in, I want to say it was like June of last year or July. And it was a very, very 
tense first meeting. I, I asked my friend Martha Garcia, who was at Hoka at the time. She now has her own business called I Am Collective. I asked her to join because she has, she's brilliant. Um, and it was a very tense meeting because the white people on that call were not ready to talk about things like white supremacy, racism. It's that whole idea of like, but I'm a good white person. Like I've never, I'm not mean to black people. Um, I have black friends, right? And so they weren't ready to have these conversations about the systemic piece. And I remember thinking like, yo, if I never talk to these people again, like, so be it. Um, thankfully that was not our last conversation. <laughs> and over the course of the summer, we continued to talk and, and it was really a moment for me where I realized that cross racial trust is hard to come by, right? Because, and that's true, not just with my relationship with the, the white people in the RIDC, but just in general, right? Because there are certain limitations. Um, there are certain things that I don't tell my white friends um, in part because they won't understand, like they won't, it's easy to shoot a text to my black friend, like, yo, can you believe, I don't know, I was followed again, right? Like, that's all I got to say. Like, you understand, you know, the whole thing, like you, 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 you know what that feeling is, you know what the feeling is of, of that additional weight that you're bearing on top of everything else. Versus with a white person, there's a level of explanation that you have to give. There's a level of perceived judgment. Anyway, so, but what I realized is how critical trust building is in cross-racial relationships. Because if you want to get to the good stuff, you have to get to the point where you do feel like you can have these conversations. So we had trust building over the course of the summer and we, and we launched, I want to say in October of 2020. Yeah. And that initial meeting that you described, how uncomfortable it was for you and probably everyone else in the room. I feel like zooming out, not just talking about the RIDC, but a lot of the conversations that we're having, certainly within running, but as a society, as a whole, it often stops there because it yeah. is so uncomfortable. And yeah, exactly. a lot of people, I'll speak as a white person, don't want to face that. They don't want to dig into the history and the systemic nature of a lot of these things that have oppressed black folks and other people of color for generations. And it stops there and then no progress gets made. Exactly. So getting over that initial hump and kind of wading through those, those muddy waters, it, it's the first step, but arguably it's the most important step because if you can't get beyond that, we're not going to get anywhere. Exactly. And, and because a lot of it, so much is, I mean, I would imagine I'm not a white person, but so much of like this white identity is tied into like goodness or badness, right? And this idea, like the scenario that I described earlier of Mario, you being in plenty of rooms where it's just a bunch of white men, you know, mm -hmm. talking about things and sharing power in that circle. Like that doesn't mean that you're bad, right? Like it's not a question of whether you're good or bad. It's a question of like, what are the, what are the systems? Like, how did it come to be that all of you white people are in that space and acknowledging that certainly it's not coincidence, right? So, and that has nothing to do with whether you're a good white person or you're a bad white person. That just has to do with white supremacy and systemic racism, right? And so I think, but to your point, like I walked away from that conversation, like, look, I don't care if I talk to these people anymore, because if they weren't going to admit to certain privileges and the, the existence of white supremacy, then I was like, 
you guys don't really want to engage in this work. Like you want to feel like, okay, like what can we do real quick, quick to like make ourselves feel better that this stuff has happened, but you don't want to engage in the shifts that need to take place. Over the past few months, since the coalition has launched and you've made it known to the running industry, which is large and vast, you've got shoe companies, apparel companies, media brands, big and small. I mean, it it, it would take a long time to kind of cover the the entirety of it. Like it, it's pretty big. I'm interested in what the the response was from the industry as a whole. I mean, specialty running stores you've mm-hmm. got as, yeah. as well. Like, was the coalition embrace? Were there a lot of brands that were eager to sign up for it and to take part? and change things within their own companies and their own cultures? Or was it the opposite? Was there resistance or even crickets from some companies in, you know, in the industry? I mean, I can look on the website and see yeah, who's yeah, listed yeah. And, and all of that. But since I, I have you here, <laughs> I'd love to get some, some inside info as much as you can share what that's, what that's been like from the, the organizational side. Absolutely. And I would say that it's all of the above. In this moment in particular, so we're undergoing um, strategic planning with the RIDC. Like this, the the, we, the coalition formed really, you know, in, from in response to these murders and um, this moment in 2020. And um, we also realized, like, okay, we need to be certain on what exactly is our mission and our vision. What is our path forward? Because to your point, this industry is vast, and in truth, we can't engage with all aspects of it well at this moment because we're new, right? So that's mm-hmm. part of our strategic, strategic planning, finding finding like the most um, intentional path forward. Well, what I would say is that um, there was, you know, a, a large group of folks who really em- embraced it. Um, within that group, there were people who were embracing it from a performative piece where like, yes, I still want to be involved in this when clearly everything their company stood for was in opposition to what our mission and goals are. Um, and that's really all I can say because I don't want to get into the companies. Then there were other companies that came to us that were um, like, I think the, my favorite experiences of, of the RIDC has been people who came to us who were completely ignorant as a, um, in regards to racial justice and doing that work, but were, like so humble and so energized to do the work, to listen, to take responsibility, right? So they were coming from a place of like, I really don't know what to do. And I'm not asking you to tell me what to do. Like, I want to be engaged in this work. Um, and I, like, and I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick with it, right? Like I prefer that person any day to somebody who wants to be performative and just wants to like slap our logo on their stuff. Um, what I've seen, so we've hosted to this point, we've hosted three workshops. Our workshops are free and there's, there's a range of topics. Um, our upcoming workshop, I believe, if I remember correctly, is on authentic marketing in August. Um, but there are people who've attended those workshops and then attended the stretch sessions that come after. And then I see them actually sticking their neck out on the line in their places of work and putting into practice what they've learned. I can say, for example, Zoe Rom at Trail Runner Magazine, and I'm, I'm mentioning names here because this was such a public and recent um, error that the magazine made. 
but Trail, Trail Runner magazine had this story about um, this white guy being the first trail runner, and mm-hmm. um, which is just like so ludicrous. But um, the feedback, the backlash was swift um, from members of the indigenous community and their allies and talking about how like this was really reconstructing the narrative of trail running and running in general to center white folks. And, and Zoe Rahm, who's part of the RIDC, attends our sessions and, I mean, does her own work, is really in there at Trail Runner Magazine to help hold people accountable, along with everybody, you know, Trail Runner Magazine has been really receptive and so has, like, outside the larger publication, so I don't mean to just single her out. But that's, like, a small moment where you realize, like, the true accountability comes from other white people holding each other accountable, because we're not going to be in all those spaces, and it's exhausting, right? So you need to the goal with of the RIDC is really to empower allies to also be questioning what space they're in, who's there, what voices are being amplified, what stories are being told. Um, so th- those are, those have been the most um, meaningful experiences that I've had with RID thus far, but you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do. And I hope that I'm able to help set this coalition off for success. And then fresh blood can come in <laughs> and pick up the baton. In the long term, do you think there will have to be a staff that is fully dedicated to the RIDC to help kind of manage it all? Uh, obviously, it's important that the folks that are at these brands and doing the work for the shoe companies, the apparel companies, the media brands are are involved and in talking to one another and doing things like you just described, calling out injustice when it happens. But I, I wonder, you see these sorts of things form and then fade away if you can't give it the time, attention, resources that, that it needs to really be solid. Is this something that the leadership of the RIDC has talked about for the long term, is putting a few folks in place who can actually just focus full time on running the ship? Absolutely. And I want to say that um, Jim Weber, the CEO of Brooks, actually, he was one of the first people, I have to shout out um, Brooks and Hoka, they were the, one of the first people to really um, take a deep interest and in make a financial um, commitment to this work. And, and Jim Weber has said, this is about taking this organization, making this organization permanent, right? Like you need to establish permanence. Mm-hmm. This can't be something that in the heat of the moment, when emotions are high, when these high profile uh, incidents in the news come up about racial injustice and, you know, police brutality that we react. It has to be that there's, you have the funding and there's an organization that's already engaged in this work. So part of our strategic planning is so that uh, the goal is to hire an executive director within the next six months. So if anybody's listening and this kind of work sounds interesting, let me know. And absolutely like they'll have to be, we're just right now envisioning what this um, organization could look like, but the idea is there should be, we hope that there's a liaison for each part of this industry, right? So mm-hmm. absolutely for brands, events, right? If you look at um, both right. road, road races and trail races, like there's so many things that need to be implemented. There's so many ways that, uh, you know, events need to rethink who their vendors are. Like, of course, like you find that vendor and you're with them for 25 years and you, you really don't want to switch. But if all, you keep all those vendors who have been there for 25 years, it's a bunch of white vendors, right? So thinking about diversifying that space, there should be a li- liaison for um, for 
run specialties. So yeah, we're putting together these plans and, and we've actually received some um, financial commitments that we'll announce a little later this summer. But the idea is that this would really be, I mean, watchdog sounds like not really the right word, but this would be the organization of accountability and yeah. justice and education. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's really encouraging because that was my biggest fear when I saw this form. Like, I love it and it's necessary and let's be honest, overdue. But I also know that it's not going to just exist on its own unless there are people who can devote their time and energy to it and are, are compensated for that because it can't be a charity gig either. Exactly. It's probably not going to last very long. And then we're back to square one and that would be terrible. Yeah. I mean, and I can tell you right now, like, the work is exhausting. It's exhausting because it's just a lot of communication. And then because you're not talking about like, how's the weather, right? Like you're talking about some really um, deep, important stuff. And you have to, um, you t- I take a lot of risks when I speak to people, even in, on this podcast, like I, I'm speaking authentically as myself, but I'm like saying things that are not universally accepted and that things people are going to have problems with. And so you have to show up willing to take those risks. Um, and so do, you know, people on the other end of that, but yeah, it's exhausting. And, and certainly, you know, my time is going to expire doing this particular work because of that. Um, so the hope is that we will already have, um, people in place to, to pick it up. Aside from your role with the RIDC, which is an industry-wide initiative, you work for Wazell. You are the director of sports advocacy and also an athlete advisor. I'd love to understand more about your role there and what it is exactly that you do and, and I guess before that, how it came to be. Yeah. So I feel like Sally and I, Sally Burgesson, who's the CEO of Wazell, have like, we've always had these moments of like, um, like really fun moments where we had an encounter and then like didn't speak to each other for a long time. Sounds like we're dating or something, but I mean, what I mean is like on Twitter, like I remember tweeting something five years ago and then she like, we ha- we would have like a long Twitter thread and then like, that'd be it. Never, I wouldn't hear from Sally again. And then I would see her somewhere. We always had like this really good energy and um, Wazell never, to be honest, I never really knew what Wazell was. Like I hadn't heard of them um, and they appeared to me as a very white brand um, and one that just wasn't accessible to me, right? But what I saw in Sally was that she was somebody who uh, was never afraid of taking chances, of honestly making mistakes, and and then also pushing up against this industry in similar ways, right? She's she's known for being outspoken about um, rules around uh, branding at Olympic events, and uh, has pushed up against like Nike and just some of sort of a lot of the limitations around athletes being able to make money and survive in this sport. So I, I, I also already knew that piece about her. Um, I would say that we, this whole thing really got going November of 2019, um, during the New York city marathon, I couldn't run because I had, well, I didn't plan to run. I had just given birth in July, but I was hosting a series of events during the New York city marathon that was bringing women together, under the name the Global Women Run Collective, which is not so much alive um, as we had intended it to be, this group, but it was bringing women together, no matter like what brand or what group you're a part of, to talk about some of the gender uh, inequities in the industry. And she and Lauren Fleshman came to that. And then I went to see Lauren Fleshman and Alicia Montano and Lauren Cruz when they had the New York Times conversation. So we got to talking about like, what could it look like if we started to work together? Fast forward to June of last year, they offered me um, a sponsor, uh, yeah, to be a sponsored athlete, uh, which is really exciting because with that was also the opportunity to finally 
well, not finally, but to make my own clothing line. Like I had always wanted mm-hmm. to produce some kind of, you know, socks in particular because of the powdered feet. But so she came to me in this way that most brands don't as like, we want to, we want to like, what do you want to do with your life and how can we help you get there? We value your voice. We value everything that you mean to this space. And we want to make sure that we're, we're helping you direct the life that you want. And then, you know, I'll give it to Sally. Sally's always, always like dropping little hints about what possibilities could be. And she kept saying, you know, Wazel, we, we really want to move in a, they had already been doing this work, but we really want to move into a direction of inclusion. We, we know how historically we might've been seen. There's an opportunity to diversify the, the volet. There's an opportunity to uplift and amplify different voices. Will you come in this role? So my role as director of sports advocacy is there's three, three pieces of it. One is internal, just um, uh, working alongside the other leadership team members, like looking at our internal culture, um, which includes like uh, helping with anti-racism trainings. Then the second is looking at the volet. The volet is the membership-based community of like 3,500 women across the, the world. And it's, it's just such a powerful space for women to connect. So how can we enhance that experience and, and grow it? And then the other piece is really introducing or helping to introduce Wazel to more folks, right? Like I believe that Wazel makes incredible product, um, supports amazing athletes, and really has a vision for um, uh, for a running industry that is more uh, what's the word um, that's more inclusive and more equitable. And but. Lots of people, I'll say Wazel in lots of places and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So how can we expand Wazel's reach? And um, yeah, it's, it's been, I've only, I've been there maybe like four months now, but it feels like it's been a lifetime <laughs> in a good way. When the opportunity presented itself, was there any hesitation on your end in taking it? Um, there, there was actually. So a lot of moving pieces here, but Amir and I were, my, my husband, we were already, we knew that we wanted to leave New York in part because of the pandemic, um, in part because we had a son and we didn't want to live in an apartment um, the size that we could afford. Um, but also we were just looking for a completely different change of pace. Like I had, we had both been in New York for all of our lives and the, like the hustle and this feeling that your worth is tied to your productivity and that you should always be doing something like, I just wanted to like relinquish those chains of capitalism, <laughs> like not feel like I had to always be doing something. And for me, when I'm in New York, that's how I feel. So it's great to visit. Um, so we knew that Amir actually got a job first in Seattle. And so mm-hmm. when Sally caught wind of that, she was like, oh, you're going to, you're now we have a job for you. <laughs> so these pieces are coming together pretty exactly, well. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, there was hesitation because I was, you know, in a sense, giving up my whole life. But I also really knew that I wanted something different. Like I miss so many people from New York. I miss Harlem Run and the community so much, but I've just gained a different piece. Like I don't have this like motor that's always like, go, 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 go. Like that's slowly um, disappearing. We don't have a ton of time left, but if we're able to, can we talk about your book? Yeah. I know that it's not due out until 2022. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called The Unbearable Whiteness of Running. We've only got about 10 minutes left, and I'm sure we could go on about it for 
an hour, but give me the the high level details, how it came to be and how the work on it is going. Mm-hmm. First of all, I have to say, I don't feel like I've even been talking to you that long. Like sometimes I forget we're recording because it's such a natural conversation. So kudos to you. Um, the book came to be, uh, I mean, for, for a lot of my life, I've wanted to write a book. I just felt like that it was something that I wanted to do, especially mm-hmm. uh, growing up reading um, Edwidge Danticat, who's a Haitian author. I, I felt like, um, like I want to be like Edwidge one day. Um, but the book really came together, I would say, in this form after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and realizing that so much of what I was sharing was shocking to white people, but completely reasonable and everyday mundane to black people and in many spaces, like in, in a larger context, people of color, right? So these experiences of feeling like you're not belonging, of getting into a space and pushing back up against structures that don't seem like they were for you. And so I realized like there's an opportunity here to tell my story, which is really a greater story of what it means to to be anything but a white body moving through public space. So a lot of my book, a lot of the incidents that I've talked about here, I talk about in the book in greater detail, but a lot of it also really looks at historically freedom of movement for black people has never been a thing, right? Like black people were brought to this country in chains. And ever since that arrival, our movement has been uh, controlled by uh, fugitive slave laws by Jim Crow, uh, who we could marry was um, was legislated, where we could eat, right? And and then you go from these de jure, de, these these legal means, to then the de facto ways that we've been. Oh, and not to mention, um, you know, redlining and 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 all of that, uh, to these de facto forms of knowing that you don't belong when people follow you in a store or people ask you if you work there or right. So this idea of like it, running is truly about a negotiation of public space. So what does it mean when you have never been given access to public space? Mm-hmm. So that's like the larger theme of the book. And it's been really interesting, like something cool that I've been able to do. Um, and I, I also have been working with Strava on this is uh, overlay maps of the original redlining of cities, overlay those maps with Strava heat maps. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> the, the redlined areas are the l- areas with the least active folks, right? Because this is, they're intergeneral, intergenerational connections here. If you're forced into low-income housing, places with low tree cover, places that then have more heat and more environmental degradation, you're not going to be, you know, running around on the street versus if you're in beautiful tree-lined places where the temperature is lower, where you have uh, the wealth and the resources, there's more cycling, running, etc. heat on these maps. So um, yeah, what I, I, what I think is that this book will be eye-opening for many white folks and will be, I hope it will be really validating for, um, for black folks and it'll, it'll make people think about what we can do to change it. Who is the target audience for this book? 
who do you want to pick it up and read it? Yeah, I, you know, it's those, it's those two audiences. I'm not like my my publisher asked the same thing, and I was like, I'm not going to give you one audience because it's two. <laughs> it's white people to um, to really learn what this experience is like, and for black people to be like, yeah, that's that's what I felt like. You know, that's that is um, finally somebody has told my story. Right? It's not it's not a uh, running is is not all bad. It's like beautiful. It saved my life. But there are also these very real pieces that even somebody like Meb, even the greatest, like the goats experience this, right? So that means it's not class related. It's race related. Is it scary for you to think about putting this out into the world? sometime next year? Uh, yes, actually, I'm going to establish a P.O. box because like, I know what has happened and I'm saying this laughing, but it's actually very scary. Like Ijeoma mm-hmm. Lo, who uh, actually lives in Seattle, also she's a back, black writer who wrote um, So You Want to Talk About Race. And somebody um, doxed her and had she had uh, a SWAT team come to her house in the middle of the night with guns drawn. So listen, like this to me, I recognize that this is sensitive information. And this is stuff that certain people, white people could get so uncomfortable with that, um, you know, they could take extreme measures. So there's that piece of it where there's like a concern for my safety. And then there's also just like, just like with this podcast, there's so much of it is raw, right? Like I'm, there's a lot Mm -hmm. that I'm divulging. Like I talk about my fears around giving birth and how having my son and seeing Ahmaud Arbery die at the same time, you know, like just... What does it mean to, as Tanahasi Coates says, you know, our children come to us endangered, right? Like, so there's a lot of rawness that will come out. Um, I mean, hopefully it's a New York Times bestseller and <laughs> I'll be back talking about it on this show. Last question before we wrap this one up. And I want to end it on an optimistic note with a question I ask of a lot of my guests. What is exciting you in running or about running right now? Hmm. You know, what is exciting me, I'm going to answer it with two, two answers. One thing that's really exciting for me personally is that I'm preparing for the New York City Marathon and I am rekindling the love of movement, right? Like I'm realizing that running can be painful, but I like, there are also times when I'm like really locked in and I'm like, damn, this is so fun. Like, this is so good. So that's really exciting to me because I never thought that I would get to that place of enjoyment again. And then on a broader level, I'm in a position in my life where my professional goals of building community align with my, my, my personal modus operandi. Like I'm doing the work of making running more accessible to more folks. It just feels like um, a really exciting and inspiring time for me. I love it. I love this conversation. Our 90 minutes is up. So I am going to have to have you back on. I think leading up to the launch of your book will be a great Yay. time to do that. So we'll have to put that on the calendar for a few months from now, a year from now, whenever it happens to be. But thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. I appreciate everything that you're doing. I'm grateful for your work and I look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much, Mario. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. 
There's no sponsor for this week's show, but if you'd like to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support, where for as little as a buck a week, you can help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is my Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, the occasional emergency pod, and other perks that pop up from time to time. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me, and I cannot thank you enough for it. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout-out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>